Hello and welcome to Employment Law Matters. This is Season 6, Episode 3. It's the 11th of April 2023. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett, a member of Outer Temple Chambers, the presenter of the Legal Hour on LBC Radio and founder of the HR Inner Circle. In this season, I'm picking my favourite episodes from 30 Employment Law webinars I ran in 2021. I've not only picked my favourite episodes, but I've selected the best half dozen questions and answers from those episodes for you. And this week, we're looking at restrictive covenants. I'm playing extracts from a webinar I did with Adam Solomon, King's Council of Littleton Chambers. And the things you'll hear include, how does an employer actually go about enforcing a restrictive covenant? In cases of constructive dismissal, are employees still bound by their restrictive covenants? And should time-limited restrictive covenants take probationary periods into account? Just before that, I've got a little quiz for you. I want you to answer these three questions in your head. See if you know the answers. Number one, it's not easy, but it is the easiest of the three. What are the new rules on who you can accept fit notes from? What are the new rules on who you can accept fit notes from. If you know the answer to that, let's try number two, the middle one. What's the new time off and statutory pay entitlement? What's the new time off and statutory pay entitlement for a particular set of personal circumstances in the workplace that are far more common than many realise? And number three... You'll think you know the answer to this, but there's so many ifs and buts and caveats and convolutions. What's the legal position on giving an extra day off for the King's Coronation Bank holiday next month? What's the legal position on giving an extra day off for the King's Coronation Bank holiday next month? If your current HR policies have the answers to any of these, well done. If not, well, I've got an announcement next week which is going to help you. But for now, let's turn to restrictive covenants. Adam Solomon KC appeared for the successful side in the first restrictive covenant case to reach the Supreme Court in over a hundred years, Tillman against Egon Zender. He's had 20 cases reported in the IRLRs, and he is described in Chambers and Partners as excellent and delightful, a great advocate who is punchy and charming, an excellent all-rounder who combines flair in the courtroom with diligence and perseverance. Here's Adam Solomon. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. First of all, is a former employee in breach of a non-solicitation covenant if their new employer, but not the employee themselves, solicits one of the clients affected by that covenant? Well, the answer is they might be. They might or might not be. Now, of course, an employee has a contract with the employer, and that's what contains the post-termination restrictions. And normally speaking, the ex-employer will be relying on their contractual rights to enforce 
any restraint. And so it's only if the ex-employee is in breach themselves of the post-termination restraints that the ex-employer will be able to get any form of relief, whether that's in the form of an injunction or damages. However, if the new employer is suddenly dealing with clients of the ex-employer, then there's a real suspicion that the only reason they're doing that is because the ex-employee is giving them the details of the client contact information or other confidential information about the clients to enable them to do so. So faced with evidence that your clients are suddenly being taken by a new employer, even if you've got no direct evidence that the ex-employee is doing it themselves, the ex-employer might well think, ah, something's up here and might rely on that to obtain or seek to obtain interim relief. But the short answer to the question is, if the ex-employee has done nothing themselves at all, then strictly speaking, they're not in breach of a non-solicitation covenant. And this question throws up the difficulty of policing and enforcing non-solicitation covenants, which is why they're often in a suite of covenants along with classically the non-compete covenant. Should a six-month non-compete restrictive covenant take the probationary period into account? So the question is, when you start employment with a new employer, when, when, a, when you give someone a new uh, contract of employment, can you immediately restrain them if they're going to leave? Or do you have to wait six months for a probationary period to have started? The answer is you don't have to wait at all. And if someone contracts with you on day one, and they have post-termination restrictions in their contract of employment, then those restrictions are enforceable immediately. And it comes as quite a shock to some employees if they sign up to a new job and then find they want to go to another job that's slightly better immediately afterwards, especially very junior ones. And suddenly the ex-employer comes along and tries to enforce restrictive covenants. And that happened in a case I was doing recently. So long as the ex-employer can show that the covenant is reasonable and protects a legitimate business interest, then even if the ex-employee has only been there for a day or for the second they signed the contract and then terminates, it's potentially enforceable. So that's really something to watch out for for employees, that um, they can be caught by restricted covenants, even if they're very junior or only been there for a short period of time. And you don't need to have uh, been there for the entirety of the probationary period in order for it to be enforceable. Uh, Last question from me, Adam Solomon, before we move to the questions from everybody else. If an employee resigns in response to a repudiatory breach of contract, so there's a constructive dismissal, are they discharged from their restrictive covenants or can the employer still enforce them? That's a, a very interesting question. There's a lot of case law on this. The historic answer has been the general bill posting rule applies. And that's that if an employer has acted in repudiatory breach of contract, then the employee is released from, and the employee accepts that repudiatory breach, of course, and there's a constructive dismissal, then the employee thereafter, or both parties are released from all their obligations to the other. And that includes post-termination restrictions, potentially doesn't include obligations of confidentiality, but that's a separate point. Now, there are dicta, lots of dicta in various cases that say that rule is wrong and needs to be re-looked at. I'm sorry to say in a case I was in, 
This was argued definitively, contrary to the arguments I made, and the general bill posting rule was upheld. So if uh, an employer is in repudiatory breach, the employees are released from their covenants. And it will have to take a case going to the Supreme Court, I think, for that rule to be changed. However, that's not the total answer to the question, because practically speaking, the vast majority of restrictive covenant cases never get to trial. And the case I was in, Brown and Neon, was a case at trial. The vast majority are resolved at the interim stage. And at the interim stage, first, a judge will look with great suspicion at an employee running an argument that the post-termination restrictions aren't enforceable because of some repudiatory breach, because that's the sort of thing employees always say. And there's case law to say that judges should raise a judicial eyebrow about that. But secondly, if there's a conflict of fact about whether there's a constructive dismissal, that's a classic example of something the court can't resolve at the interim stage. There's a serious issue to be tried, and so it won't be resolved, then the covenant will be upheld. And because the vast majority of cases never get to trial and resolved after interim relief, in fact, this argument never really gets determined and an employee will often not be successful in running that point. Matilda Swanson with 40 Thumbs Up asks, if an employee breaches a restrictive covenant, so works for a competitor soon after leaving, what can the former employer actually do about it? Well, this is exactly the sort of thing I do on a daily basis, Matilda. What the employer can do is get interim relief. And the first thing the first thing the employer will, will normally need to do is write a letter before claim saying to the ex-employee you've got to and the new employer here are your covenants your there's a non-competition covenant that's enforceable you've got to stop acting in breach you've got to stop working for the new em- employer and if they don't or if it's very urgent then uh, normally speaking on three clear days notice you go to court and seek interim relief. And that's the classic sort of uh, relief that restricted covenants call for. And so the vast majority of cases are resolved at the interim relief stage. But that's exactly what an employer, ex-employer should do. They shouldn't say all covenants are unenforceable, so I'm just going to let my ex-employees go. They should get advice very quickly and then potentially go to court very quickly as well. But speed is of the essence. Matilda, yeah. Is it enforceable to name precise competitors? Yes, you can do that. So if if you're in a in a if your client works in a restricted area and say there are five competitors that that that, um, you know of that if your ex employee went to work for, they would definitely have damaging confidential information that would undermine your business and undermine your legitimate business interests, then you can name them. Sometimes that's useful. Uh, So sometimes when you have such a list, you can go to court and say, look, this is definitely within the non-compete covenant because they're on the list of names that we've set out in advance. However, sometimes things change. So if you have a list of five competitors when you sign up to the covenants and by the time the employee has left two years later, whenever the number of competitors has changed to six or seven and they're not named, then that can undermine you. So you've got to think very carefully whether or not 
you have a list at all, whether you want it to be an inclusive or exclusive list, list or whether you just want a general non-compete covenant that you think will be more or less enforceable. Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates. So if you want practical and commercially focused HR support, or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalise on your experience by joining a great team, visit www.breedenconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, breedenconsulting.co.uk. Another question from James Fairchild, an employee who's left has given confidential information to their new employer. We know this because they've told us gleefully. No specific contract point deals with this. Can we do anything? Yeah, uh, that is the, the, the classic question that I'm often asked. The answer is maybe. And it, it turns on what type of confidential information it is that the employee has given to their new employer. And the law is this, that during employment, an employee may not misuse their employer's confidential information. But if it is mere confidential information, I don't know why the courts use that phrase, mere confidential information, then um, the employee is free to use it after they leave employment to the extent that they're not subject to any restrictive covenant that impinges on that right. However, if the confidential information amounts to a trade secret, then the employee may not use that post-termination, irrespective of what the contract says. That's a right in equity or uh, an implied term. And so the question is really what type of confidential information it is. And there's lots of arguments about where on that spectrum between confidential information and trade secrets matters sit. So I'm doing a case at the moment where there's a dispute about whether client contact information, so an ex-employer's client contact details can amount to confidential information. I think the better argument is, yes, it can. That's my argument as a matter of fact in the case, but I think it is right that contact de- client contact details, the type of goods they buy, for example, the prices they pay, that's all a classic example of information that would amount to a trade secret. So if that is the sort of information you're talking about, if it's that sort of quality, then you can protect it as a matter of equity and you can get injunctive relief to prevent the ex-employer and the new employer from using and or disclosing that information. Um, really good question from Helen Hancock. When introducing new restrictive covenants into existing contracts, how much consideration should be offered in, well, given the age of what we're talking about, guineas, shillings and pence? It's a classic contract question. How much consideration do you need to provide in order to make the contract enforceable? Consideration, there must be something, some form of consideration. It doesn't need to be equal to the promise. Um, it must be adequate, but not equal, whatever the, the rule, law, contractual laws on consideration are. So you can give £100 or £50 or something, some nominal amount. However, some courts and some dicta have 
also looked at the consideration for the covenant in order to determine its enforceability. So sometimes courts will say this chap was paid a million pounds a year and therefore you could have more restrictive covenants in the contract. So arguably, if you want it to be more enforceable, give more consideration. Although as a strict matter of law, that you're not obliged to, so long as there is some consideration, you know, peppercorn classically um, is given for consideration in uh, leasehold uh, agreements some consideration that's adequate that's all you need mark mason asks does the role an employee proposes to move to affect the enforceability of a non-compete clause so for example mark says if a salesperson moves to work for a competitor in a non-customer facing admin role will it make the covenant less enforceable than if they're moving to a sales role with that competitor Yeah, well, that's a great question. And it goes to the heart of what non-compete clauses are trying to protect. And there are are two lines of cases which go both ways, different directions on on this very point. Some cases like tradition tradition securities case or the the case I was in, Egon Zender, have general non-compete clauses in which it doesn't matter what role the person's going into the clause bites in any event. So the basis for that is that the non-compete is there to protect the confidential information. And it doesn't matter, for example, if the employee is sitting in the back room because they could feed the confidential information even unconsciously to their employer if they're not in, even if they're not doing the sales-facing role themselves. There are other cases which go in the opposite direction. In, in tradition, the, the tradition in Gambarini case, these were discussed. And in those cases, the court said the covenant is there to protect your trade relations. And so if the employee is going from a sales role to a back office role, then it doesn't, that the trade relation is unaffected. And therefore the covenant's too broad if it says you can't, can't compete in any role and you should have a more specific role. So both lines of authority are arguable. The the answer is, what's the covenant there to protect? And what's the evidence on which the ex-employer is relying in order to enforce that covenant? Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. An anonymous attendee asks, can an employer ever reasonably claim ownership of an ex-employee's LinkedIn connections. I'm going to split that question into two, Adam Solomon. Can an employer claim ownership and does it have to be subject to the test of reasonableness? I'm not sure I know what ownership is. Ownership is a a difficult question when you're dealing with confidential information because classically you can protect it, but you don't, it's not a property right. But can an ex-employer say that the LinkedIn, your LinkedIn 
contacts that you make are uh, protectable, that when you leave, you have to, for example, delete all your LinkedIn contract contacts, and you may not use your LinkedIn contacts for business purposes after you leave. Yeah, that that's a possible type of information that can be protected. And I've done a couple of cases recently where we've argued precisely that. And um, they happen to be express in the contract. Now, if they're not expressed in the contract, it might be more difficult, but you just apply standard arguments about confidential information to the questions and you get the answer. But I think the safest, the safest bet is if you want to protect them, put them in, make that express in the contract. Mizbah Sadiq asks, what advice would you give to help draft a restrictive covenants so they are enforceable and they don't amount to restraint of trade? So top tip for drafting a covenant. I think we've actually done this, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, you, well, I, you've got to tailor it, ask the employer precisely what they need to protect. Think about the heads of legitimate business interests. So, for example, trade relations, confidential information, workforce stability, maybe supplier protecting your supplier rights and tailor your covenants so they protect precisely those elements for the ex-employer and do no more than is reasonable. So if the employer thinks the confidential information will subsist in that valuable form for six months or eight months or whatever, then don't have any more than that and maybe tailor those restrictions for specific employees as well. So my, my biggest single bit of advice about drafting is speak to the client, get their precise instructions on why, why it is they need it and what it is they want to protect. And for each employee have a different one. And then as Daniel says, review every few months. Julie Davis asks, if a new employee brings a following to his new employer, should those clients be excluded from any future restrictions? And if so, how long could it be before the employer argues those clients are now theirs, the employers, to protect? Yeah, well, that, that is a classic example of something that is up for negotiation. But if you don't, if you don't specifically agree it, and if the employee goes to a new employer, brings a following of clients, they are not his or her clients at that point. They're the clients of the employer. And they are protectable by restrictive covenants. So if I start at Daniel Barnett's business tomorrow with my 100 client followers and I have restrictive covenants in place, six months later, I can't leave with those clients because my restrictive covenants would protect me from, would prevent me from doing so. They'd be Daniel's clients because he'd be the person investing in the business, in paying me, for example. However, as you rightly say, you can negotiate. So if and a, a, a regular carve out on covenants that I that I've seen is that if the employee has themselves introduced the client, or if the client came with the employee before a certain date, then they are unprotectable by the employer, and they can remain unprotectable forever as long as they fall fall within that carve out. But unless there's a specific carve out, if there's a restrictive covenant preventing say, dealing with clients, then the employees prevented. Friti Pajaria asks, in your view, should an employee entering into a contract 
accept badly drafted restrictions in the hope they'll be unenforceable? Or should the employee seek to negotiate them at the outset to make them more acceptable? Great question, Pretty. So it's a brilliant question. It depends on the risk appetite of the employee. So I did a case very recently where the employees were legally advised and there was separate payment made to lawyers at the time of entering into the agreement to independent lawyers to advise the employees on the enforceability of the covenants. And the ex-employer said, you had independent legal advice. And so you knew that these covenants were uh, enforceable when you signed them up, when you knew about the, the risks. And the ex-employee said, yeah, we knew. We knew that they weren't enforceable, which is why we signed up to them. So it's a classic example. Do you, do you try and negotiate so something's reasonable for you? Or do you take a punt on something being held to be unenforceable at trial or at interim relief? Uh, I think it depends on the risk appetite of the individual employee and what their, what their intentions are as well. So if they know they want to compete... Um, in breach of covenant, then their risk appetite might change. But if if what they're saying to you as their legal advisor when they're signing up to the covenants is, you know, broadly, I want to comply with my obligations. I think I, I want to comply with what I think is reasonable. Then you might think it's better to negotiate at that stage for a reasonable covenant. That was Adam Solomon, King's Counsel from Littleton Chambers. Join me next Tuesday, the 18th of April, 2023, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my webinar with Rebecca Tuck, Casey, in which she answers questions on tribunal time limits. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.